We're at Matthew 21. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, just a really quick recap. Um, we went over the triumphal entry last week. Remember, you remember that? Where there's this epic scene of Jesus coming and he's declaring himself as king. And he heads immediately. Where does he go first? He goes to the temple and he causes quite a stir. He causes this massive disruption after he sees the poor being gouged and taken advantage of. And so Jesus enters this temple, and, and he's mad about what's happening there. And we see this side of Jesus that we don't talk about often. This is the temple. This is the house of Yahweh God, the God of Israel. And Jesus comes, and he saw that it was a place of business rather than a place of worship and rather than a place of being in the presence of God that he intended it to be. And so Jesus isn't happy about this. And we see him. He's, he's mad He's angry at the state of Jerusalem and, and its leaders, and he enters the city on a mission. He enters it with a mission and a message from God. The time is drawing close for these Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of the synagogue. Jesus is saying, the time is, is basically over, you guys. Repent and turn to the invitation of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been preaching. If only they would do that. If only they would do that. But because your hearts are hard, the temple is going to be destroyed. And judgment will come upon you just like it has time and time again in Israel's history. And so this is Jesus and his prophetic words. We looked at this last week, and it's a sad story. It's a sad story. Jesus cleanses the temple. But what does he fill it with immediately? The blind and the lame and children are then welcomed, and they're coming to him in that place, and they're being healed. And then Jesus gets into this verbal sparring match with some priests, and from there he goes out of the city, and he spends the night in this small town called Bethany, and he, and he goes out for the night, has a rest, comes back to the city the next day, which we saw this weird story of Jesus just hating a fig tree, and he curses it, and it withers, and it dies. And this is Jesus being, being a prophet. It's a dramatic prophetic act to show that Israel was fruitless as it had been many times before. And that the destruction of the temple is coming because of Israel's corruption and injustice. These are really important things for us to really, really understand. God is angry at corruption and injustice, and especially in the house of God, especially in his house. And as we continue on, I just we need to recap this because this, this all just goes together. This is one letter, the whole book of Matthew. So we need to con consistently remember where we're at. Um, but as we remember, um, I had said we're trying to finish Matthew by the end of the year, right? So we're, we're going to be skipping. We're going to be going over large swaths of Scripture at a time sometimes and then definitely leaving other points entirely alone. But we're going to pick it up exactly where we left off last time. Um, and Jesus has now come back into Jerusalem, and it's on day two of his last week in Jerusalem. And so we see this in Matthew 21, 23. Oh, I've got to turn this clicker on. Sorry. We did so good with, with technical things normally, but here we go. Just got to turn it on. Matthew 21, 23, and, and you can look in your Bibles if you want to. When he entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So Jesus comes out of his rest at night and he goes straight back to the temple. 
After that big scene the day before, he goes straight back to the temple, and he, and he begins teaching. So crowds are forming around him, and the leaders of the temple are not happy. They're not happy. I don't, it, just, it just seems so obvious that it, it, they shouldn't be happy. They're, he's coming into their place and teaching without authority, or so they think. And it's all so intentional, you guys. Just it's so intentional on the part of Jesus. Jesus, if we think, if we just think humanly, he seems to have lost his mind. Riding into town, declaring himself as king, flipping tables in the temple, saying the temple is going to be destroyed, calling out their religious leaders for their hypocrisy. And now he's teaching in that temple without any official authorization. Once again. Just keep it in the back of your mind. That's a really good way to get yourself killed. Exactly. So this sets the picture of the rest of chapter 21 and chapter 22. We'll see Jesus' intense interactions with spiritual leaders of the day in these two chapters. And mostly that's what these two chapters are all about. And we've visited this many, many times as Jesus continues to have these interactions with these, with these leaders. Um, but Jesus doesn't seem to respect their issues very much at all. In fact, if we didn't know uh, from history how crooked these leaders are, and if we didn't know how, how loving and how zealous for his father's house Jesus was, uh, it would kind of seem rude. It would seem rude. Uh, Jesus goes and he tells them a couple parables. We've seen Jesus tell parables over and over again, and he tells stories that people would that sometimes people would just wouldn't get, and it was to conceal what he was saying. But sometimes it was just really obvious what he was saying. In this one, he tells a couple obvious parables that paint a picture of the leader's hypocrisy and their hard hearts. How do you like to have somebody come and tell you a story? about how awful you are. That that probably wouldn't go very well, would it? So Jesus, he just also, besides these stories, he just straight up calls it out and says shocking things to these holy or seen as holy men in this community. 2131 says, Truly I say to you, he's talking to the Pharisees, just as Jesus talking to the Pharisees, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. He's talking to the religious elite of the day. And it's clear that Jesus declares that these guys are missing the kingdom of heaven. For all of their ritual and religion, they are missing the kingdom of heaven. And they were the ones thought to be closest to God. But it's obvious then that Jesus' measuring stick is so different than theirs. It's so different. And he says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And so how about that? Producing fruits? Character. Character, that inner working of the heart, Jesus says. And that's what we see here. But we can imagine these these leaders saying, but we do all the sacrifices. We try to obey the law to the smallest detail. But Jesus says they're missing something. They're missing something. And so, 21, 45 to 46, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Oh, they figured it out. And although they were seeking to arrest him, 
They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The priests and Pharisees were not happy. Now it's their turn to be angry. They were being humiliated in their own space, in their own sphere of influence uh, over these people that are now being talked to by this Jesus guy, the very people that used to notice them and praise them and play to their egos. Now they're listening to this Jesus guy talking about the ways of the kingdom and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This idea of the lowest becoming the greatest, these things, it doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus was teaching in the temple, but we know that Jesus' teaching was of the kingdom of heaven consistently, consistently. And so not only is, is this Jesus guy teaching those things and, and, and this grace and this invitation to the kingdom, but he was calling out the leaders for their hypocrisy in front of everybody. And so these guys kind of come to this point and they're like, oh, we got to do something about this. We got to do something about this guy. This is not okay. But as you can see, they were scared um, because the crowd still held him. Notice how it's taken a step down and Maybe not Messiah yet, but to be a prophet at the very least. Then we get to chapter 22, which is really just a continuation. How are you guys doing? You good? <laughs> if this all feels rushed, just keep with me. We're headed somewhere today, okay? And this is all really important for where we're headed. Um, Jesus tells them another parable, and he tells them a parable of the wedding feast. He tells them a parable of the wedding feast, and it goes like this. There's a king. And this king is excited because his son is getting married. And this king is going to throw his son a huge party, a feast, a wedding feast. And so he sends invitations. He sends out some servants to the people that are invited to this wedding. And he sends these invitations, but the people that are invited wouldn't come. So the king hears this, and he sends other servants to go and once again Say, hey, guys, it's going to be so good. This time he goes, they actually go with a message to like, it's got everything. There's this massive feast. It's all ready to go. It is like, just picture your favorite foods, and it's like endless supply, all you can eat. It's going to be a party. Come on, you guys. It's going to be so good. Just come on down. But again, the story goes, they ignored the invitation. They ignored the invitation, and not only that, but some servants that were extending the invitation were even killed by some who were invited to the party. And we're like, what? What? Well, the king, he was rightfully upset and angry about this, and, and this time he sends troops. He sends his army now to destroy those who were so awful to his servants and ignored his good invitation to the feast. Then he sent out servants to go into the street. And they just went out on the street, and whoever they could find, they were invited now, they could come and enjoy the feast that he had prepared. Now the wedding hall would be filled with guests. You guys tracking with this story? We can, we can understand what's happening here. The guests were, were now ready for this party, and they come to the party. And I have no doubt they were incredibly grateful for the opportunity. Now, the story I always have thought, it seems like it could end there. And we, there would be so much to glean. But it keeps going. 
The king comes into the festivities, and this party is happening, and, and all these people, just a ragtag bunch, they're all together. And the king comes in, and he sees a guy who doesn't have his wedding garment on. How can you be in here if, if you aren't ready, if you don't have your coat? You didn't get your coat. And so this guy is tossed. He's tossed out of the party where it describes there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the parable ends. There's that extra little bit. I always feel like it's an extra little bit at the end, but it really makes the parable really drive something home. And we're like, whoa. It was very clear what Jesus was saying to the priests and the Pharisees. Israel, you guys have had every opportunity. You have been invited into my abundance time and time again. I sent the prophets to invite you. And I gave you second chance after second chance after second chance, and you would not come. And so now this invitation is going out from beyond you. And those who are happy enough to welcome that invitation, who would receive that garment, are able to be there. You were the first ones, the beloved who were invited to the feast. That's true. That is true. They were the first ones invited to be God's people or the king's people in the story, to eat in his house. But you refused because you had other plans, plans to make a name for yourself, plans to do it in your strength without loving the king and the son. And you missed out. In fact, you even killed the prophets who were sent to warn you. We know that from Israel's history. You even killed the prophets who were sent to warn you and give you a second chance. And now you don't get the feast. How's that for a happy Sunday morning message? In other words, you don't get the feast. You don't get the kingdom of heaven. It'll be given to the very people you look down upon here in your own society. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, right, that we talked about. It will even go to the foreigner as they respond to the invitation. And so I want to pause for a moment today because this is parable and story and we might put our own spins and stuff on it. But I want to make it ultra, ultra, super clear for us today. I think it is very simple for us. Jesus is saying to the temple leaders, this is going to be hard for us to hear in our, in our modern age. Jesus is saying that the, to the temple leaders that they are destined for hell, weeping and gnashing of teeth means hell for having ignored the invitation of God to his abundant kingdom. That is what Jesus is saying to these guys. That holds a lot of weight in the temple. And then we breathe with our modern, uh, very gentle kind of, you can't say that to somebody minds in our culture. And we say, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? Well, he's standing in the temple. He's telling the so-called holiest people and the whole religious system that they missed the mark and they are going to hell. Jesus is passionate about his father being honored above men and is unapologetically offending these leaders, even publicly. And I'll say it again, this is a very good way to get yourself killed. And so we keep reading because after this parable, we see that the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Pharisees weren't okay with what he was doing here. And so the Pharisees wanted 
to plot against Jesus. They start quizzing and testing Jesus by sending even undercover operators to him. They send people that will go and test him, even sounding like they're nice to him. Oh, teacher, we know that you're wise and you're good and you come from, come from God. What do you teach us? And they start asking him things, hoping that they would trap him. But Jesus, he sees right through it. And we read this. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Jesus is having none of it. And then he gets grilled by some Sadducees. And they ask him some weird questions too. And then we have to like, we're going fast, but we got a timeout just for a moment. Because I don't think we've met Sadducees yet as we've been working through Matthew. And so Sadducees are religious leaders of the day, but they do not believe in the afterlife. They do not believe in a, in a resurrection, but do believe, here's what they do believe. They believe that the laws in the Torah are the best way to live for human thriving and flourishing. They believe that wholeheartedly. So they believe that keeping the law in the Torah was the best way to live your life. So they were ultra strict, like the Pharisees, but instead of controlling people in religion so that they would get to heaven, they were controlling in religion so that they could, quote, live your best life now, essentially. That's what, that's what these Sadducees were all about. And so if anything threatened that, if anything threatened this live your best life now because it's, when it's over, it's over, these guys were very serious about keeping the law. So we just need to understand that a little bit about the Sadducees. And they, they were kind of at odds sometimes with the Pharisees over their different beliefs. Um, so because of that, their question is super weird. It's, just a, it's a weird question already, but it's super weird. They come up to Jesus and they essentially ask, if a, if a woman is married and her husband dies, and then she marries another man, and that guy dies, and that happens seven times. This is literally what they ask him. And she's been married to seven different people. They've all died. And then she dies after the last one dies. Whose wife is she going to be in heaven? That's what they ask. And we're like, what? <laughs> That's a weird question, guys. That is weird. Not only that, you don't even believe in eternity anyways. What are you, what are you even asking the question for? Anyways, here's Jesus' response to the Sadducees said to him, you should, oh, nope, that's not what I have at all. I'm just going to read it. Matthew 22, 29. Uh -huh. There you go. I got to check my PowerPoints. No, we got the word in our hands, right? Here's what it says. Jesus, this is that weird question. Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Wait, pause, what? They just asked you a question. You're wrong. <laughs> because you knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Man. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, they, he just calls them out for their nonsense question. <laughs> as for the resurrection of the dead, guys, because I know you don't even believe in it anyways. Have you not read what was said to you by God? Do you even read your Bibles? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God, not God of the dead, but of the living. 
And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And so that's his, that's his response. I wanted to highlight all these stories because Matthew really hammers it home. And he makes it glaringly obvious. He just spends time on this. So we, we're spending time on this. That he was making it glaringly obvious that G, what Jesus was doing as he began his last week in Jerusalem, he was acting as authority, as prophet. Okay? We talked about that last week. Calling out the leaders for their sin and for their poor leadership and leaving no room for that in his kingdom. But we know his heart is for repentance and for a turning to God. So everyone was watching as this played out in a very public temple. Everybody around was watching. And remember, there's 200,000 people gathered for Passover in a city that is normally 50,000 people. This, there's crowds here. And so then this is all going, going on. The Pharisees see Jesus' response to the Sadducees. I, I'd have to think that uh, they would be rather pleased with Jesus uh, cutting down these Sadducees a little bit and silencing them. And one of them, one of these Pharisees came and asked Jesus a question. And he comes to him to test, the word says that he came to test him. He says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And if you have been around the church anytime, you could say this. Most of us haven't memorized. What is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You ever heard that before? Yeah, we know that. It's the great commandment. It's the great commandment. And in these words of Jesus, in this moment, it, it is absolutely irrefutable. They can't be argued by any Pharisee or Sadducee or priest or leader in the temple. And we find something in these words staring not only those leaders, but us square in the face that stands in stark contrast to what Jesus has been addressing with the leaders the whole time. It's not about you. It's not about your authority. It's not about your rules. It's not about your rituals. It's not about being culturally appropriate. It's about love. It always has been, and it always will be, about love. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you guys have missed the mark. You have missed the mark. And he's saying that to these temple leaders. And I have to ask this the question today, how about us? You can only, only you can answer that before the Lord. How about us? I don't think this problem of the heart is reserved for only the Pharisee. I think any of us can descend into loving the religion and, and miss out on loving God himself. Can I get an amen for that one? <laughs> like, we know that, right? We don't like that, but we know that. Jesus isn't giving a new command. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5 in this instance. And this is a passage that the leaders would have had memorized, and they knew it well. And a command that is the foundation of every other command given in Scripture. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 7, 9, he writes that God is faithful and he keeps his covenant and he blesses those through generations. But of who? It says, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. 
those who love him and keep his commandments. King David was commended not for his achievements as much as being known for being what? We say it all the time. What was King David known for? A man after God's own heart, right? He's a man after God's own heart. Similarly, the Apostle Paul, he writes in this famous verse in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We, wanna, we often want to say, all things work together for good because of God. Lots of people use that verse that way. All, for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who love him with their heart and with their soul and with their mind and with their strength, as it adds in, in the Gospel of Mark. And so all this setup with Jesus and the hypocritical leaders, it draws us in to this thought in the great commandment. The greatest commandment is to love God with absolutely everything we've got. And the second is like it, then to love others as you love yourself. And so if these guys, and if we, let's not get ourselves off the hook, if these guys and if we would truly get that loving God and loving others, we would truly be blessed. Really, really, I think that if you want to talk live your best life now, that's your best life forever. That's your best life forever. Jesus says if, if we can get this, and we can't apart from him, everything else plays itself out. It really does. He says all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in these two. Really, everything else that God commands is played out in these two. Love God and love people. And here, you know, we, say, we always say love people extravagantly, right? Well, it's surprising to some of us. It's surprising to many. Uh, the Old Testament, this is its foundation as well. The Old Testament covenant recognized that a relationship with God wasn't based only on these rules, but that it came from within. It had to, the relationship with God came from within. That's really important for us. It's not from the keeping of the law, but it's from the heart. Love God with all your heart. With your heart, right? As Proverbs 4.23 says, from a person's heart flows the springs of life. And without your will, your passions, your affections, your desires aligned with and aimed towards God, this life of love is, is impossible. It's impossible. And so the word tells us to guard our hearts many, many times. Guard your hearts. Moses calls Israel. He says, know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Like in your heart, know this. That the law wouldn't just be duty, but be in their hearts. These words that I command you today when it's commanding the Old Testament law shall be on your heart. Shall be on your heart. And what are the Psalms? As we read the Psalms, but a bare heart before God the Father in lament and praise and worship. We need to not only intellectually under, try to understand God's words and in our own strength then keep his commandments, although it will take effort, of course. But we need to instead allow understanding from the Holy Spirit, through, you can't do that without being humble, to seep into our hearts 
and to see his greatness, to see God's greatness. His love for us, for you, his love for you is amazing, and his love for the world around you, which plays out in how we love people. And it's when we understand his heart, it's when we understand his heart that we give him ours, that we give him ours. It says we, we love because he first loved us. Amen? And so along with our hearts, we're called to love God with our soul, with our soul. What does that even mean? What, love God with your soul. The first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, uh, when it talks of the soul, it talks about, it's this concept, and we don't really have a great way of explaining it, but it's the whole being of a person, of a living person. It's, it's this whole being, like who you are in the depths of your, of your being. The heart can be included in this, but it's so much more. Jesus is saying that everything within us is to declare a love for God, loving God with, yes, emotion and passion and zeal and a hunger for him, being thoughtful, as well as how we talk, what we do with our bodies, how we react in hardships, how we use our talents, the list goes on, is all included in loving God with our souls. Our entire being is to genuinely love God, and then what happens is then we display this inner reality. It it just flows out of us, right? From the heart flow the springs of life. It flows out of us with our soul. With our soul, we're to love God. And then to love God with our minds. With Love God with your mind. To intentionally focus on, on our Savior. Turning our minds. It's this idea in the Psalms of meditating on, on him. Of, of turning our minds to God over and over. That's worshiping him, actually. Turning your minds to his story when we're actually prone to make things all about us. We turn our minds to his story when, when we're prone to think that we're the center. We turn our minds to his faithfulness, and we're intentional about that, to his love and to his grace, instead of maybe having pity parties or trying to gain all you can for yourself. We turn our minds and love God in this way, allowing that to inform your heart and your soul and to love him in obedience, as the word says, right? The word says, we looked at it so many times, that to love him is to obey his commandments. And to to love the Father is to obey him, is to obey him. And honestly, honestly, if we love God, loving others will be a natural byproduct. I totally believe this. Man, I have tried to love others in my own strength so many times, and people just People just drive me nuts <laughs> in my own strength without the love of God pouring into my heart because I'm loving him. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to love others, but we need that. We need these work in tandem, okay? And honestly, if we love God, loving others will be an outpouring of this. And it's not without effort. <laughs> we know this. But it certainly is impossible without the love of God first at the center. I recommend this week, uh, if if you would, go and read First John. You can read it in one sitting in 10 minutes. Go and read First John and see how he talks about this, how we love God and how a love of God pours out of us as we love others. Um, it's inseparable. 
Uh, and he ties our love for others to our love of him. Grant spoke of this truth a couple Sundays ago. If you missed it, uh, you can catch it on the podcast. It's really good, and it's really good truth for us to, to remember. Um, loving God with everything we've got, it looks like a wholehearted, life-encompassing, like every aspect of life, not just a Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Or It's a life-encompassing, wholehearted devotion, and it, it's relationship-impacting, this love of God. It's this commitment to God. And this only happens, all of that, when we, when we know him. When we know him. Holy Spirit, would you awaken our hearts to love? Holy Spirit, would you awaken our hearts to love God and love people? Would we be a people that love you? We're praying for unity, God, in your church. May it begin here and spread to your church, those whom you died for because we love you so deeply that we would love others. Lord, would you do this? Oh, that his heart and, and, and his loves would be our loves. Amen? Oh, that his heart would be ours? The people made in his image? Oh, man, that, that his griefs would be ours. Not as many amens for that. I get it. But honestly, the greatest Intimacy with God is when your heart breaks for what he, his breaks for and when you rejoice in what he rejoices in, that he would do, oh, that he would do that in us. You know, this Jesus, Jesus shows us that this hypocrisy and this sin grieves, us, grieves him, and it should grieve us too. And I'm talking about when it's in you, especially, when you see it in you. There needs to be an authentic, authentic, sincere love for God that starts with God-oriented affections, desires, and thoughts. And then this, it, it's going to change. It's going to permeate. It's going to just saturate our speaking, our behavior, and it's going to influence everything. It's going to influence how we spend our money. It's going to influence how we spend our time. It's going to influence our relationships, how we drive, <laughs> what we take in for entertainment. Like seriously, every, every piece of our lives. The inner reality of love for God plays out in the outward reality of praise and worship in every sphere of life. I'm going to read that again. The inner reality of love for God plays out in the outward reality of praise and worship in every sphere of life. And it plays out in loving others as God loves us. I don't know about you, but aren't you thankful that it's not all about the rituals and the rules and trying to have everything together like these Pharisees were trying to do? We can just agree that grace is amazing, amen? I mean, don't get me wrong. God calls us to holiness. He does. But only out of a deep, loving, heart-changed obedience. Heart-changed obedience to a loving and lovely Father. No one else is worthy. Not even close and no one else will satisfy like him. The Pharisees and the priests and the Sadducees, they had the outside works down fairly well. Better than probably most all of us here, they had the outside works. I would be willing to bet. On the outside, they were doing the stuff, but inside, their lives were anything but governed by a deep love for God, which is the foundation from way back in Deuteronomy. That was the expectation for a relationship with God. So let us never go through the motions of empty religion 
We, we love to practice different things here. We're here on a Sunday morning. We love to pray. We love to do things that connect our hearts to God, not to just to do the things. So let us never go through those motions and miss out on their eternal riches of knowing, loving, and being known by this magnificent God, Jesus. Jesus, who as we continue in Matthew, he is on his way to the cross. And it's just like you can feel, feel this anticipation that is building up as we continue in Matthew, right? It's just like he enters in this last week. It's just getting so intense and it's, it's all building up to Jesus heading for the cross. And it's because of the cross that we love this God, that we have grace, that it's because of the cross that there is a new covenant. It is made in Jesus's blood for every sin, every wrong, everything that, could, that you have done that could never, never be a part of a relationship with God apart from his grace and his love in the Lord Jesus. This Jesus, he's heading for that cross and things are getting intense right now in Matthew. And as we continue, he's headed straight for that that we would be born again, and in this new covenant, it says that we will be given new hearts, new hearts of love for God, of love for God. <laughs> Can we just like, we are so not able to do that on our own, but he gives us new hearts to love God. That's awesome, amen? That's awesome. So love God with everything you've got. And love people extravagantly. Let's, let's pray together. I just want to be on my knees before you, Lord. God, you are so holy. We think of the, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit speaking, and the universe exists. We're so far from the center of this universe. It is you. It is you, God. And so, Lord, as we pause, we, we, give, you, we give you our hearts. If you're in this place and, and your heart has, you've just been holding back. You've had the invitation. This is your invitation right now to the wedding feast. This is your invitation Come, it's all ready. This abundant God is, is, is wanting you to come. Just say, yes, God. Yeah, I don't deserve it. Lord, do this work. Make my heart new. Lord, continue to renew us in your way each and every day. Jesus, would your church be marked by a love for you? Just unashamed and a love for people that just doesn't make sense apart from Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty grave. We thank you that you're here with us and that you go with us from this place. We love you. We love you, Jesus. Let's just together say, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Hmm. We thank you, Jesus. Go before us. We love you. Amen.